welcome to the Daily Office Lectionary. I'm Father Reed. Today, we are going to look at Proper 27. Proper 27, and this proper is toward the end of the second half of the liturgical season. The liturgical season actually will begin in a few more weeks after Proper 29. There's only three propers left, 27, 28, and 29, then we start Advent. But the first half of the season is Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Easter, uh, and we celebrate Pentecost. And then the second half of the season are the Sundays after Pentecost, and they are delineated by these propers, and there are 29 of them. So we are looking at proper 27. Look at the scriptures in this post right now, and you'll see an interesting uh, phenomenon that I want to share with you so that you'll be aware of it. Look in the Old Testament section. You see you have Ezra 10. We'll look at Ezra 10 in just a minute. Then Nehemiah 9. Both of those are extraordinary scriptures about confession of sin. The community confesses. And then we have Nehemiah 9 on Tuesday. On Wednesday we have 7 to 8. And then it, we, it's blank on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And that's because we are studying 1 Maccabees. First Maccabees is listed. Now 1 Maccabees is an apocrypha scripture. And that is not considered to be the word of God. So I don't comment on those scriptures. And so I've left those blank for you. I'll obviously have a little bit more time for Ezra and Nehemiah this time. If you look at the middle section, you'll see Revelation 18 and 19 and 20. Revelation has 22 chapters. So this week and next, we'll be looking at the end of Revelation. It's quite spectacular, talking about a new heaven and a new earth. And then we continue our journey with Jesus in Matthew 15 through Matthew 16. Okay? So, we have Jesus in Matthew 15 and 16. We have the end of the book of Revelation. And we have Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, Ezra and Nehemiah, as you may recall, are history books. The only book after Ezra and Nehemiah is Esther, and that's a very famous history book. Let's turn to Ezra chapter 10, the people's confession of sin. Not just, we, we speak a lot of times about individual confession of sin and all of us needing to repent of our sin, but this is the community repenting. It's quite extraordinary. Verse 1. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered about them. They wept bitterly. Then Shanachina, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women. Remember we spoke about that last time. Marrying foreign women. He warned them not to do that from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there's hope for Israel. Now, we sinned against God. We did something wrong. All of us can relate to that. We are going to confess our sins is what's going to happen. And that's going to give us hope. Now, if we don't confess our sins and our sins remain with us and we continue to sin against God, then hope abates. Hope slows down at best or leaves at worst. Okay? So, the confession of sin is very, very important. Now, let us make, verse 3, now let us make a covenant before our God and send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commandments of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Now we're returning back to the law. We are returning back to the word of God. We are returning back to the covenants. Uh, 
So whenever you and I do something that's offensive against God, again, we see this, we'll see this in Nehemiah chapter 9, we want to return back to God. We want to return back to his word, and we want to know and obey his word. We want to talk about his word. We want to obey his word. We want to encourage one another to do that. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. So Ezra rose up in verse 5. He put the leading priests and Levites and all of Israel under oath to do what had been suggested, and they took the oath. Okay, so they gathered people around them, and they separated themselves from the foreign wives. They confessed their sin against God, and the whole idea is that God is going to restore them. So when you and I sin against the Lord, you want to get restoration. In order to get restoration, you have to repent. You have to ask God to forgive you. Let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 9, Ezra Nehemiah. And the title of this is a very long scripture uh, in this chapter. The Israelites confess their sins. So this is a very, very famous text. Uh, We have it all the way through verse 38. Obviously, I'm not going to read all that to you, but it's a fantastic chapter in Nehemiah. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. That was the idea also in Ezra chapter 10, which we just read. They stood in their places. They confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were. They read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day and spent another fourth in confession and worshiping the Lord their God etc., etc. Blessed be your glorious name. So they're praising him and they're glorifying him. May he be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. So we're giving credit to God. We're praising God. We're worshiping God. You are the Lord. Verse 7, who chose Abram and brought us out of Ur, the Chaldeans, and named him Abraham. So now they're recounting their history and all that God did. You've kept your promises because you are righteous. Verse 8, Then he talked about the Egyptians and leading them out. He talked about in verse 13, Mount Sinai gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. So he's a good God. The commands and decrees are very helpful. They're important to follow. I'm thinking of Deuteronomy. You are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, verse 17, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, that you did not desert them even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf. This is an exodus. This is your God who brought you out of Egypt or when you committed awful blasphemy. So y'all did terrible things. God rescued you. There was condemnation for those that did the terrible things. But he still is a loving God, gracious, forgiving, and saved them. Okay? Then they wandered in the desert for 40 years. You sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kings and nations. So all these wonderful things. But, verse 26, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. They they killed the prophets who admonished them to turn their back to you. They committed awful blasphemy. Verse 27, so you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. He sent the prophets. Remember, we've talked about that the last several weeks. God provided a way out. They did not take it. Because they did not take it, there were severe consequences because they had offended God. Verse 29, you warned them to return to your law, but they became arrogant and they disobeyed your commands. Please, folks, do not do that to the Lord. 
They sinned against your ordinances by which a man will live if he obeys them. So if we obey the word of the Lord, we do what the word of the Lord says. We know the word of the Lord. We find his path. Uh, He reveals it to us. He says, walk in this way. We walk in that way. We're going to receive blessing. Okay? In your great mercy, verse 31, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, which he could have easily done, justifiably so. For you are gracious and merciful. You are gracious and merciful. And so they asked God for forgiveness. They noted all the wonderful things. And look at that last verse. We are in great distress. We need God, folks. And we, when we offend him, we need to repent. We need to recognize who he is. We need to recognize what he's done for us. We need to look at our past and see how he's been faithful. And what this is, uh, Ezra 10, Nehemiah 9 are great examples of God working in their midst and God speaking to them. So enjoy reading those chapters fully. I just gave you a little uh, bite-sized bits of it and, and some commentary on it. Nehemiah chapter 7. Okay, here we're listing the exiles who returned. What exiles? Remember 587, the Babylonians destroyed the um, Israelites and they destroyed the temple and they uh, tore down the walls and they set fire to the place and then they took people into captivity. And these are the people that returned. We call this post-exilic. They came back after the exile. They were exiled in Babylonia. Remember, in the northern kingdom, they were exiled in Assyria. In the southern kingdom, okay, Judah and Benjamin, 12 tribes, two of the tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they were exiled by the Babylonians, and uh, now they are coming back. Uh, 7 through 8, 3. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the scribe, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord commanded for Israel. So they brought it out and they began to read it. They listened to the book of law. So what did I just say? They needed to come back to their traditions, come back to the things that God had spoken to them about earlier. They had sinned against God and now he's calling them back to himself. These are great life lessons for all of us. Read these chapters carefully. Now let's go to the end of the book. We are in Revelation 18. Revelation 18. The last book of the Bible, the 66th book of the Bible, is the book of Revelation. Revelation 18, 1 through 8. I saw another angel coming down from heaven. Verse 1, he had great authority and the earth was illumined by his splendor. And he shouted, Fallen is Babylon the Great. Now, we just talked about Babylonia. Babylon. Okay? Babylon the Great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. Okay? So the Lord is speaking. Here's a prophecy. Verse 10. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Whoa, whoa, oh great city, oh Babylon, city of power. God's in charge, folks. In one hour, your doom has come. We do not want to offend the Lord. We do not want to go against the Lord as a nation, as a community, as a family, as an individual. We want to submit to the Lord. We want to honor the Lord. We want to lift up the Lord. The 18th chapter 
is a phenomenal chapter on what is going to happen when we have sinned against God. When folks sinned against God. Whoa, whoa, oh great city. Verse 19. Where all had, who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. For the way she treated the Israelites. For the way that she treated the people of God. She is greatly judged. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea. This is verse 21. And said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. It's an amazing chapter. The 18th chapter of Revelation. Enjoy it. A phenomenal prophecy about the fall of Babylon. Because they had offended the Lord and the Lord... Um, enacted his retribution and wrath against them because their offense against the people of Israel. The 19th chapter is exactly opposite. Very positive, very uplifting, very exciting because the Lamb shows up in this wonderful chapter. Verse 1, After this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belongs to our God for true and just are his judgments. See chapter 18. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Hallelujah. So they are praising God for his judgments, which gave them liberty and freedom because the evil kingdom, the evil empire, the evil group of people, the evil nation had oppressed the Jewish people greatly. Now, what he's basically saying here is, and we'll continue to read, is that Jesus is ultimately going to be the victor. There's going to be victory in Christ. There's going to be um, uh, joy and exaltation from the people that know God because they will feel the vindication of their witness before the Lord and they will know that God has conquered the nations that have offended God and have been against them. Praise our God, all his servants who fear him, both small and great. Verse 5. Hallelujah. Verse 6. Our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. The wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. The angel said to me, Right. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, you want to be invited to the wedding supper. Okay, If you're not invited to the wedding supper, that's going to be a big problem. All right? Those, these are the true words of God, he says in verse 9. All right? So verses 11 to 16 are about the rider on the white horse, one of the great series of verses in my view in the Bible. Very, very powerful. This is showing, the first part is showing the greatness of God and what he did in vindicating his people and blessing and saving his people. This part right here is the greatness of Christ Remember, the post-resurrection Christ that we saw in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see him see it much better developed here in Revelation chapter 19. His robe is dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. Verse 13, the armies of heaven were following him. The armies of heaven 
riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, out of his mouth, this is Jesus, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is an immensely powerful figure. So what you're seeing is now we're going to have the second coming of Christ. Christ is going to set up his kingdom and he's going to deal with his enemies. And finally, you see Revelation 21 through 6 in this post. I saw an angel coming down from out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. Now, that's all that's going on in the middle section of Revelation. If you remember my, our conversation last week, our teaching last week, those middle chapters are pretty difficult. They're pretty difficult. And there's lots of imagery, you know, apocalyptic um, imagery and pictures and metaphors. Look at verse 2. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil of Satan. And bound him for a thousand years. There's the binding of Satan for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be free for a short time. So when is this going to happen? How is this going to happen? Is this a literal thousand years? Is this not a literal thousand years? I do not know. I don't think anybody absolutely knows what it is. Lots of people have opinions. The key is that God is going to be the victor, that God is going to reign, that the enemies will be thwarted, they will be destroyed, they will be cast into the abyss. Enjoy Revelation um, 20, the first half of 20, we'll pick up next week with 21 and 22. Let's continue on our journey with Jesus in Matthew 15. Jesus' ministry continues on. Matthew 15, 1 through 20. He's talking to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And they're asking him questions and he's responding. So remember, Jesus' ministry, he's doing lots of different things. He's healing. He's casting out devils. He's doing nature miracles. He's doing phenomenal miracles of healing for people. He's raising people from the dead. He's also teaching the people the kingdom of God. He's also ranting and raving and dealing with the crazy questions and concerns that the Pharisees and the Sadducees have, the lawyers, the scribes. So he's dealing with the people that do not like him, that do not care for him, that would like to see him killed. That's what this first section is asked, uh, is giving us today. Now, don't you see, verse 17, that whatever enters into the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body. But the things that come out of the mouth, they were concerned about what to eat. Jesus is concerned about what comes out of you. The things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a person unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a person unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. One of the things that Jesus is trying to do in his ministry with the Jewish people, the leaders, is to explain to them what is important and what is not, what is truth and what is not true. Where tradition is important, but the truth of the gospel is significant and they need to pay attention to it. So they were focused on things that were not helpful. Jesus tries to redirect them. 
they are not open to what Jesus has to say. Now, obviously, I'm getting ready to say that we should be doing the same thing. Don't waste your time on things that are not important to your relationship with Christ. Focus on things that are in the scriptures that are clear that focus on the things related to the Lord, okay? We see the faith of the Canaanite woman where Jesus casts out the demons of this person, this Gentile daughter, not even close, not far away. So he has the power to cast out demons in a far distance. Then he feeds the 4,000. Remember, he had fed the 5,000. They did not completely understand it. Where are we going to get enough bread, verse 33, in this remote area to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have? Seven, a few small fish. He took the seven loaves, the fish. He gave thanks. He broke it. They gave it in turn. They ate. They were satisfied. They picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces. He does it again. Second time. 4,000 people. And that's just the men. So women and children could easily have upwards over 10,000 people, maybe 15,000 people. He's got uh, seven loaves, and they're not very big, and a few fish. Tremendous miracle. Go to 16. The Pharisees want a sign. Show us a sign from heaven. Then he talks about the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees in verses 5 through 12. Then he talks about How is it that you don't understand, verse 11, that I was not talking to you about bread? Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus is very concerned about teaching, about the right teaching, about truthful teaching. When people get teaching that's false, it does not help them at all. So he's showing them that a little bit of untruth that the Pharisees and Sadducees are giving us, or giving them, I should say, is dangerous, okay? Make sure you get the truth of the gospel. Then we have the very famous section from 613 to 20 with the confession. And the question for all of us, one of the great questions, if not the best question, Jesus says in verse 15, what about you? Who do you say that I am? So in 13 to 20, which we call a pericope, kind of a fancy term, Fancy Greek term. In that section right there, Jesus is uh, goes to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Who do they people say the Son of Man is? And so they list something. Then he looks at them and say, who do you say that I am? And that's a question for all of us. So contextually, Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples. Now personally, today, you, me, who do you say that Jesus is? And Peter answers it correctly. And God, Jesus blesses him for that. Who do you say that he is? You've got an opinion. What is your answer? And then finally, in 1621 to 28, Jesus predicts his death, and Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you, verse 22. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Out of my sight, Satan. He calls him Satan. That's very strong. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Out of my sight, Satan. Remember we saw in Revelation that Satan was going into the abyss for a thousand years? So to call someone Satan is about as derogatory a term as you could use. But Peter was thinking on his own instead of what God Almighty had planned. You are 
Do not have in mind the things of God, the things of men. We need to always focus on the things of God, not our things. What does God say? What does God want for us? And then, of course, he tells them, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. What good will it be for a person to gain the whole world yet lose his soul? What could you give in exchange for your soul? Your soul, brothers and sisters, is eminently valuable, infinitely valuable. It's life and death. It's eternal life or eternal death. All right? And he's going to reward each person according to what he's done in verse 27. Ezra, Nehemiah, confession of sin. Aware of our sin against a holy God. Revelation, the extraordinary 18th chapter. The judgment against Babylon. In the 19th chapter, the great lamb riding on a white horse. And Matthew's gospel, the continuation of Jesus' ministry and how he impacts people and how he teaches us and uses miracles, draws us to himself by feeding us literally and spiritually. Hope you enjoy your week of learning and prayer and reflection. God bless you abundantly. We'll see you next week for Proper 28 on the Daily Office Lectionary. God bless you.